Section 10 of Reflections on the Revolution in France. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reflections on the Revolution in France, and on the proceedings in certain societies in London relative to that event in a letter intended to have been sent to a gentleman in paris seventeen ninety by edmund burke section ten society is indeed a contract subordinate contracts for objects of mere occasional interest may be dissolved at pleasure but the state ought not to be considered as nothing better than a partnership agreement in a trade of paper and coffee calico or tobacco or some other such low concern to be taken up for a little temporary interest and to be dissolved by the fancy of the parties it is to be looked on with other reverence because it is not a partnership in things subservient only to the gross animal existence of a temporary and perishable nature it is a partnership in all science a partnership in all art a partnership in every virtue and in all perfection as the ends of such a partnership cannot be obtained in many generations it becomes a partnership not only between those who are living but between those who are living those who are dead and those who are to be born each contract of each particular state is but a clause in the great primeval contract of eternal society linking the lower with the higher natures connecting the visible and invisible world according to a fixed compact sanctioned by the inviolable oath which holds all physical and all moral natures each in their appointed place this law is not subject to the will of those who by an obligation above them and infinitely superior are bound to submit their will to that law the municipal corporations of that universal kingdom are not morally at liberty at their pleasure and on their speculations of a contingent improvement wholly to separate and tear asunder the bands of their subordinate community and to dissolve it into an unsocial uncivil unconnected chaos of elementary principles it is the first and supreme necessity only a necessity that is not chosen but chooses a necessity paramount to deliberation that admits no discussion and demands no evidence which alone can justify a resort to anarchy this necessity is no exception to the rule because this necessity itself is a part too of that moral and physical disposition of things to which man must be obedient by consent or force but if that which is only submission to necessity should be made the object of choice the law is broken nature is disobeyed and the rebellious are outlawed cast forth and exiled from this world of reason and order and peace and virtue and fruitful penitence into the antagonist world of madness discord vice confusion and unavailing sorrow these my dear sir are were and i think long will be the sentiments of not the least learned and reflecting part of this kingdom they who are included in this description form their opinions on such grounds as such persons ought to form them the less inquiring receive them from an authority which those whom providence dooms to live on trust need not be ashamed to rely on these two sorts of men move in the same direction though in a different place they both move with the order of the universe they all know or feel this great ancient truth quod illi principi et praepotenti deo qui omnem hunc mundum regit nihil eorum quae quidem fiant 
in terris acceptius, quam concilia et coetus hominum iure societati, quae civitates appellantur. They take this tenet of the head and heart, not from the great name which it immediately bears, nor from the greater from whence it is derived, but from that which alone can give true weight and sanction to any learned opinion, the common nature and common relation of men. Persuaded that all things ought to be done with reference, and referring all to the point of reference, to which all should be directed, they think themselves bound, not only as individuals in the sanctuary of the heart, or as congregated in that personal capacity, to renew the memory of their high origin and caste, but also in their corporate character to perform their national homage to the institutor and author and protector of civil society, without which civil society man could not by any possibility arrive at the perfection of which his nature is capable, nor even make a remote and faint approach to it. They conceive that he who gave our nature to be perfected by our virtue willed also the necessary means of its perfection. He willed, therefore, the state. He willed its connection with the source and original archetype of all perfection. They who are convinced of this his will, which is the law of laws and the sovereign of sovereigns, cannot think it reprehensible that this our corporate fealty and homage, that this our recognition of a signori paramount, I had almost said this oblation of the state itself, as a worthy offering on the high altar of universal praise, should be performed as all public, solemn acts are performed, in buildings, in music, in decoration, in speech, in the dignity of persons according to the customs of mankind, taught by their nature, that is, with modest splendor, with unassuming state, with mild majesty, and sober pomp. For those purposes they think some part of the wealth of the country is as usefully employed as it can be in fomenting the luxury of individuals. It is the public ornament, it is the public consolation, it nourishes the public hope. The poorest man finds his own importance and dignity in it, whilst the wealth and pride of individuals at every moment makes the man of humble rank and fortune sensible of his inferiority, and degrades and vilifies his condition. It is for the man in humble life, and to raise his nature, and to put him in mind of a state in which the privileges of opulence will cease, when he will be equal by nature, and may be more than equal by virtue, that this portion of the general wealth of his country is employed and sanctified. I assure you I do not aim at singularity. I give you opinions which have been accepted amongst us, from very early times to this moment, with a continued and general approbation, and which, indeed, are so worked into my mind, that I am unable to distinguish what I have learned from others from the results of my own meditation. It is on some such principles that the majority of the people of England, far from thinking a religious national establishment unlawful, hardly think it lawful to be without one. In France you are wholly mistaken, if you do not believe us above all other things attached to it, and beyond all other nations. And when this people has acted unwisely and unjustifiably in its favor, as in some instances they have done, most certainly, in their very errors you will at least discover their zeal. This principle runs through the whole system of their polity. They do not consider their church establishment as convenient, but as essential to their state, not as a thing heterogeneous and separable, 
something added for accommodation, what they may either keep up or lay aside according to their temporary ideas of convenience. They consider it as the foundation of their whole constitution, with which, and with every part of which, it holds an indissoluble union. Church and state are ideas inseparable in their minds, and scarcely is the one ever mentioned without mentioning the other. Our education is so formed as to confirm and fix this impression. Our education is in a manner wholly in the hands of ecclesiastics, and in all stages from infancy to manhood, even when our youth, leaving schools and universities, enter that most important period of life, which begins to link experience and study together, and when with that view they visit other countries, instead of old domestics whom we have seen as governors to principal men from other parts, three-fourths of those who go abroad with our young nobility and gentlemen are ecclesiastics, not as austere masters, nor as mere followers, but as friends and companions of a graver character, and not seldom persons as well-born as themselves. With them, as relations, they most commonly keep up a close connection through life. By this connection we conceive that we attach our gentlemen to the church, and we liberalize the church by an intercourse with the leading characters of the country. So tenacious are we of the old ecclesiastical modes and fashions of institution, that very little alteration has been made in them since the fourteenth or fifteenth century. Adhering in this particular, as in all things else, to our old settled maxim, never entirely, nor at once, to depart from antiquity. We found these old institutions, on the whole, favorable to morality and discipline, and we thought they were susceptible of amendment without altering the ground. We thought that they were capable of receiving and meliorating, and above all of preserving, the accessions of science and literature, as the order of providence should successively produce them. And after all, with this Gothic and monkish education, for such it is in the groundwork, we may put in our claim as to ample and as early a share in all the improvements in science, in arts, and in literature, which have illuminated and adorned the modern world, as any other nation in Europe. We think one main cause of this improvement was our not despising the patrimony of knowledge which was left us by our forefathers. It is from our attachment to a church establishment that the English nation did not think it wise to entrust that great fundamental interest of the whole to what they trust no part of their civil or military public service, that is, to the unsteady and precarious contribution of individuals. They go further. They certainly never have suffered, and never will suffer, the fixed estate of the church to be converted into a pension, to depend on the treasury, and to be delayed, withheld, or perhaps to be extinguished by fiscal difficulties, which difficulties may sometimes be pretended for political purposes and are, in fact, often brought on by the extravagance, negligence, and rapacity of politicians. The people of England think that they have constitutional motives, as well as religious, against any project of turning their independent clergy into ecclesiastical pensioners of state. They tremble for their liberty from the influence of a clergy dependent on the crown. They tremble for the public tranquillity from the disorders of a factious clergy, if it were made to depend upon any other than the crown. They therefore made their church, like their king and their nobility, independent. From the united considerations of religion and constitutional policy, 
from their opinion of a duty to make a sure provision for the consolation of the feeble and the instruction of the ignorant they have incorporated and identified the estate of the church with the mass of private property of which the state is not the proprietor either for use or dominion but the guardian only and the regulator they have ordained that the provision of this establishment might be as stable as the earth on which it stands and should not fluctuate with the europus of funds and actions the men of england the men i mean of light and leading in england whose wisdom if they have any is open and direct would be ashamed as of a silly deceitful trick to profess any religion in name which by their proceedings they appear to contemn if by their conduct the only language that rarely lies they seem to regard the great ruling principle of the moral and the natural world as a mere invention to keep the vulgar in obedience they apprehend that by such a conduct they would defeat the politic purpose they have in view they would find it difficult to make others believe in a system to which they manifestly gave no credit themselves the christian statesmen of this land would indeed first provide for the multitude because it is the multitude and is therefore as such the first object in the ecclesiastical institution and in all institutions they have been taught that the circumstance of the gospels being preached to the poor was one of the great tests of its true mission they think therefore that those do not believe it who do not take care it should be preached to the poor but as they know that charity is not confined to any one description but ought to apply itself to all men who have wants they are not deprived of a due and anxious sensation of pity to the distresses of that miserable great they are not repelled through a fastidious delicacy at the stench of their arrogance and presumption from a medicinal attention to their mental blotches and running sores they are sensible that religious instruction is of more consequence to them than to any others from the greatness of the temptation to which they are exposed from the important consequences that attend their faults from the contagion of their ill example from the necessity of bowing down the stubborn neck of their pride and ambition to the yoke of moderation and virtue from a consideration of the fat stupidity and gross ignorance concerning what imports men most to know which prevails at courts and at the head of armies and in senates as much as at the loom and in the field the english people are satisfied that to the great the consolations of religion are as necessary as its instructions they too are among the unhappy they feel personal pain and domestic sorrow in these they have no privilege but are subject to pay their full contingent to the contributions levied on mortality they want this sovereign balm under their gnawing cares and anxieties which being less conversant about the limited wants of animal life range without limit and are diversified by infinite combinations in the wild and unbounded regions of imagination some charitable dole is wanting to these our often very unhappy brethren to fill the gloomy void that reigns in minds which have nothing on earth to hope or fear something to relieve in the killing languor and over-laboured lassitude of those who have nothing to do something to excite an appetite to existence in the palled satiety which attends on all pleasures which may be bought where nature is not left to her own process where even desire is anticipated 
and therefore fruition defeated by meditated schemes and contrivances of delight and no interval no obstacle is interposed between the wish and the accomplishment the people of england know how little influence the teachers of religion are likely to have with the wealthy and powerful of long standing and how much less with the newly fortunate if they appear in a manner no way assorted to those with whom they must associate and over whom they must even exercise in some cases something like an authority what must they think of that body of teachers if they see it in no part above the establishment of their domestic servants if the poverty were voluntary there might be some difference strong instances of self-denial operate powerfully on our minds and a man who has no wants has obtained great freedom and firmness and even dignity but as the mass of any description of men are but men and their poverty cannot be voluntary that disrespect which attends upon all lay poverty will not depart from the ecclesiastical our provident constitution has therefore taken care that those who are to instruct presumptuous ignorance those who are to be censors over insolent vice should neither incur their contempt nor live upon their alms nor will it tempt the rich to a neglect of the true medicine of their minds for these reasons whilst we provide first for the poor and with a parental solicitude we have not relegated religion like something we were ashamed to show to obscure municipalities or rustic villages no we will have her to exalt her mitred front in courts and parliaments we will have her mixed throughout the whole mass of life and blended with all the classes of society the people of england will show to the haughty potentates of the world and to their talking sophisters that a free a generous an informed nation honors the high magistrates of its church that it will not suffer the insolence of wealth and titles or any other species of proud pretension to look down with scorn upon what they look up to with reverence nor presume to trample on that acquired personal nobility which they intend always to be and which often is the fruit not the reward for what can be the reward of learning piety and virtue they can see without pain or grudging an archbishop precede a duke they can see a bishop of durham or a bishop of winchester in possession of ten thousand pounds a year and cannot conceive why it is in worse hands than estates to the like amount in the hands of this earl or that squire although it may be true that so many dogs and horses are not kept by the former and fed with the victuals which ought to nourish the children of the people it is true the whole church revenue is not always employed and to every shilling in charity nor perhaps ought it but something is generally so employed it is better to cherish virtue and humanity by leaving much to free will even with some loss to the object than to attempt to make men mere machines and instruments of a political benevolence the world on the whole will gain by a liberty without which virtue cannot exist when once the commonwealth has established the estates of the church as property it can consistently hear nothing of the more or the less too much and too little are treason against property what evil can arise from the quantity in any hand whilst the supreme authority has the full sovereign superintendence over this as over any property to prevent every species of abuse and whenever it notably deviates 
to give it a direction agreeable to the purposes of its institution. In England most of us conceive that it is envy and malignity towards those who are often the beginners of their own fortune, and not a love of the self-denial and mortification of the ancient church, that makes some look askance at the distinctions and honors and revenues which, taken from no person, are set apart for virtue. The ears of the people of England are distinguishing. They hear these men speak broad. Their tongue betrays them. Their language is in the patois of fraud, in the cant and gibberish of hypocrisy. The people of England must think so, when these praetors affect to carry back the clergy to that primitive evangelic poverty which in the spirit ought always to exist in them, and in us too, however we may like it, but in the thing must be varied, when the relation of that body to the state is altered, when manners, when modes of life, when indeed the whole order of human affairs, has undergone a total revolution. We shall believe those reformers to be, then, honest enthusiasts, not, as now we think them, cheats and deceivers, when we see them throwing their own goods into common and submitting their own persons to the austere discipline of the early church. With these ideas rooted in their minds, the commons of Great Britain, in the national emergencies, will never seek their resource from the confiscation of the estates of the church and poor. Sacrilege and prescription are not among the ways and means of our committee of supply. The Jews in Change Alley have not yet dared to hint their hopes of a mortgage on the revenues belonging to the See of Canterbury. I am not afraid that I shall be disavowed when I assure you that there is not one public man in this kingdom whom you wish to quote, no, not one, of any party or description, who does not reprobate the dishonest, perfidious, and cruel confiscation which the National Assembly has been compelled to make of that property which it was their first duty to protect. It is with the exultation of a little national pride, I tell you, that those among us who have wished to pledge the societies of Paris in the cup of their abominations have been disappointed. The robbery of your church has proved a security to the possessions of ours. It has roused the people. They see with horror and alarm that enormous and shameless act of proscription. It has opened, and will more and more open their eyes upon the selfish enlargement of mind and the narrow liberality of sentiment of insidious men, which, commencing in close hypocrisy and fraud, have ended in open violence and rapine. At home we behold similar beginnings. We are on our guard against similar conclusions. I hope we shall never be so totally lost to all sense of the duties imposed upon us by the law of social union as upon any pretest of public service to confiscate the goods of a single unoffending citizen. Who but a tyrant, a name expressive of everything which can vitiate and degrade human nature, could think of seizing on the property of men, unaccused, unheard, untried, by whole descriptions, by hundreds and thousands together? Who that had not lost every trace of humanity could think of casting down men of exalted rank and sacred function, some of them of an age to call at once for reverence and compassion, of casting them down from the highest situation in the commonwealth, wherein they were maintained by their own landed property, to a state of indigence, depression, and contempt? 
the confiscators truly have made some allowance to their victims from the scraps and fragments of their own tables from which they have been so harshly driven and which have been so bountifully spread for a feast to the harpies of usury but to drive men from independence to live on alms is itself great cruelty that which might be a tolerable condition to men in one state of life and not habituated to other things may when all these circumstances are altered be a dreadful revolution and one to which a virtuous mind would feel pain in condemning any guilt except that which would demand the life of the offender but to many minds this punishment of degradation and infamy is worse than death undoubtedly it is an infinite aggravation of this cruel suffering that the persons who were taught a double prejudice in favor of religion by education and by the place they held in the administration of its functions are to receive the remnants of their property as alms from the profane and impious hands of those who had plundered them of all the rest to receive if they are at all to receive not from the charitable contributions of the faithful but from the insolent tenderness of known and avowed atheism the maintenance of religion measured out to them on the standard of the contempt in which it is held and for the purpose of rendering those who receive the allowance vile and of no estimation in the eyes of mankind but this act of seizure of property it seems is a judgment in law and not a confiscation they have it seems found out in the academies of the palais royal and the jacobins that certain men had no right to the possessions which they held under law usage the decisions of courts and the accumulated prescription of a thousand years they say that ecclesiastics are fictitious persons creatures of the state whom at pleasure they may destroy and of course limit and modify in every particular that the goods they possess are not properly theirs but belong to the state which created the fiction and we are therefore not to trouble ourselves with what they may suffer in their natural feelings and natural persons on account of what is done towards them in this their constructive character of what import is it under what names you injure men and deprive them of the just emoluments of a profession in which they were not only permitted but encouraged by the state to engage and upon the supposed certainty of which emoluments they had formed the plan of their lives contracted debts and led multitudes to an entire dependence upon them you do not imagine sir that i am going to compliment this miserable distinction of persons with any long discussion the arguments of tyranny are as contemptible as its force is dreadful had not your confiscators by their early crimes obtained a power which secures indemnity to all the crimes of which they have since been guilty or that they can commit it is not the syllogism of the logician but the lash of the executioner that would have refuted a sophistry which becomes an accomplice of theft and murder the sophistic tyrants of paris are loud in their declamations against the departed regal tyrants who in former ages have vexed the world they are thus bold because they are safe from the dungeons and iron cages of their old masters shall we be more tender of the tyrants of our own time when we see them acting worse tragedies under our eyes shall we not use the same liberty that they do when we can use it with the same safety when to speak honest truth only requires a contempt of the opinions of those whose actions we abhor this outrage on all the rights of property was at first covered with what on the system of their conduct was the most astonishing of all pretexts a regard to national faith 
the enemies to property at first pretended a most tender delicate and scrupulous anxiety for keeping the king's engagements with the public creditor these professors of the rights of men are so busy in teaching others that they have not leisure to learn anything themselves otherwise they would have known that it is to the property of the citizen and not to the demands of the creditor of the state that the first and original faith of civil society is pledged the claim of the citizen is prior in time paramount in title superior in equity the fortunes of individuals whether possessed by acquisition or by descent or in virtue of a participation in the goods of some community were no part of the creditor's security expressed or implied they never so much as entered into his head when he made his bargain he well knew that the public whether represented by a monarch or by a senate can pledge nothing but the public estate and it can have no public estate except in what it derives from a just and proportioned imposition upon the citizens at large this was engaged and nothing else could be engaged to the public creditor no man can mortgage his injustice as a pawn for his fidelity End of section ten.